Let's pray. Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning. Please use your word to teach us more about you. Open our eyes to see your majesty. Amen. Good morning, church. It's a privilege to be here this morning to preach God's word to this local gathering of the saints. Please turn with me to Psalm 95, if you're not already there. Today, we're in the Psalms, not our normally scheduled journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And because of this, I want to speak a little bit on the Psalms. The Psalms speak to the experience of life, both its highs and its lows. John Calvin called the Psalms an anatomy of all parts of the soul. And there's a genuineness that can be found in the Psalms. Now, there can be a tendency to view the Psalms in two different extremes. Something too difficult to understand or as something that's only meant to be encouraging and a devotional when you need a spiritual pickup. To the one who feels overwhelmed when looking at a book of 150 chapters of Hebrew poetry, hear this. The Psalms are for making wise the simple. Take heart if you feel discouraged or unqualified to dig in and study. Scripture, and the Psalms in particular, provide God-given insight to those who seek to grow in understanding and judgment. Now for the other extreme, the Psalms should not be viewed merely as a cute, quotable piece of wall art that you stick in your entryway. Now the Psalms are like precise surgical instruments perfectly and completely reaching every part of the Christian's life with exacting accuracy. As one preacher puts it, the Psalms are for igniting worship. The Psalms are for cleansing lives of sin. The Psalms are for fortifying hearts, and the Psalms are for evangelizing souls. And today, as we dive into Psalm 95, we're going to see all of this. Here's our main point this morning. God's relationship with his people propels us to joyfully worship him and willingly obey him as our sovereign king. And to see that most clearly in the text, we will examine four directives that help us do this. There will be four directives that help believers joyfully worship and willingly obey our great God who knows us. Look now with me at verses 1 and 2, where we see the first directive. Joyfully praise God. Starting in verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. The opening words of this psalm are supposed to be a jump, a kickstart that immediately spurs action, like a spark hitting gasoline. Boom, right away. This psalm opens with a public corporate call to worship. Oh, come, move it, get going, let's sing. Let's stoke the fire of worship. There are three elements in this call to worship. What we do, who the worship is to, and why we do it. 
So what is this psalm calling us to do in these first two verses? We are called to sing, to make a joyful noise, to enter God's presence. This is not self-conscious, minimized worship. This is full-throated singing. Some of your translations have joyful noise. Others say shout. And that gets at the idea. This is praise using all the force that the human body has to offer. We greet our God with unashamed enthusiasm. Too often, we are absent in mind, concerned with other things, or even self-conscious about our own voice. And we don't enter into worship with the passion and joy that's described here. Oh, come, let's worship our God. Aren't you excited? Worship is not designed to be done outside of God's presence. We don't go away from God to worship him. We go to him. And to enter the presence of God is no small thing. In fact, there are many examples in Scripture where we see that improperly entering God's presence to falsely worship him can have serious consequences. And yet God has made a way for his people to enter his presence in worship. And that is one reason why we should be thankful. Because of the work of our great high priest, we know that we can freely enter God's presence and worship. This is what Psalm 95 calls us to do, to sing and shout and enter God's presence with thanksgiving in our hearts. Now, who is it that we're called to worship? Well, it's God, obviously. The psalmist uses a few distinct titles of God, which gives us an indication of how he's thinking about God. The first title we see there, right in verse 1, Yahweh, which is indicated in most of your Bibles with Lord in, in small capital letters. The psalmist calling God Yahweh tells us a few things. He's saying, come on, let's go sing to Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the God who gave his name to his people, the name that communicates God is eternal and self-existent, Yahweh. In the very next line, we see another reference to God, the rock of our salvation. This is an old reference that has deep roots in Scripture going back all the way to Deuteronomy. And the idea that's communicated here in rock is the strength and perfect reliability of God. But that's not all. We see, it that, we see that it's the rock of our salvation. The psalmist is calling everyone to praise and worship the perfectly reliable and sure God who saves his people. And we see in 1 Corinthians that this rock of our salvation is none other than Jesus, the secure of our salvation. What do these two titles of God communicate? They communicate relationship with, his God, with God. This whole psalm is about this idea. It's about the God who has a relationship with his people. The psalmist's call to worship is not this abstract call to worship some impersonal distant God. No, he's imploring that we all join together and worship our God who has a personal relationship with his people. And we should praise God like he's done something for us, because he has. When someone does something for you and goes above and beyond even what you could have possibly imagined, how do you respond? In life, when someone does something like that, we give them a good review. We give them five stars. We tell everyone that they're awesome. 
We should praise God like he has done something for us because he has. He has given us himself. We have a relationship with our God. That's why we worship. That's why we sing. That's why we joyfully shout as we enter his presence. We do it because we're thankful for everything that God has given us. We do it because we can enter into his presence. We do it because of the salvation that he secures for us. And we do it because he's a mighty, strong, sovereign God. There's something else I would like to draw your attention to in these first few verses. Notice the corporateness of this psalm. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us come into his presence. Let let us make a joyful noise to him. Let us, let us, let us. Some psalms are very very much meant to be individually applied and thought about. This psalm is not like that. This psalm is clearly corporate and focused on the entire gathering of God's people. Now, don't get me wrong. There are absolutely truths here that apply individually to each one of our hearts. And we'll especially see that at the end. But don't miss this important, glaringly obvious truth. God's plan for worship is not just meant to be individually applied and thought about. God's plan for worship means that we're all responsible to each other in our praise. That means that we're saying, come on, brother, come on, sister, let's praise our God together. Let's be joyful because of this great salvation that has been bought for us. We need this corporate call because we forget. We are prone to wonder. Like a coal taken out of the fire, we grow cold and start to forget our God. And corporate worship is us getting back in the fire. God's purpose for redeeming a group of people to be his people was not so that they would all worship him separately. No, God's purpose was so that his people would be gathered and worshiping together. So GBC, when we sing and worship our great king, look to the right and left. See the marvelous work of mercy that God has redeemed your fellow brothers and sisters. Worship him together. Be reminded of this. Let us not forget and dim our worship. So what does this look like? And here, I don't want you just to think about this corporately. Think about this individually. Do you joyfully praise God? Does thankfulness fuel your worship? Are you caught in absent-mindedness, thoughtlessly humming along with the tune, just waiting for the sermon to start and get over with so that you can get church out of the way and get on with your weekend. Brothers and sisters, that is a dangerous path to go down. Examine your heart. Do you joyfully praise God in there? True worship comes from the heart. Where is your heart Monday through Saturday? Do the people around you, in your home, and at your work, do they see that you joyfully worship God? Can they tell that dad loves God because dad doesn't worship himself or his work or his hobbies? Dad worships God. Another way to examine your heart, are you joyfully looking forward to corporate worship every Sunday? Are you regularly gathering with God's people to worship? Now, there's some individuals with legitimate health risks, and that inhibits them even now with gathering with, with GBC. And we know that they desire nothing more than to worship here with the saints. But if that's not you, examine your heart. 
hear this call to come and join and worship together. The psalmist is not calling for worship to be done over Zoom and live streams. No, he's calling us to gather and worship together. The psalmist is going to give us more reasons to worship God as we move to our second directive in verses 3 through 5. Clearly see God's sovereign rule. Verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. After the first call to come and worship, the psalmist now draws our attention to God's might and his work in creation. Here, we are given a reason for our worship. We also see more details about God and what he has done. And if we see God properly, we will worship him properly. These three verses really serve as a motivation for our worship, which we even see in the first word of verse 3. For, because, let us sing, let us make a joyful shout, because Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, is a great God, a mighty God, an awe-inspiring God. There is a reason for our worship. It's not just because, it's because of who God is. And who do we see God is in verses 3 through 5? Well, immediately we see Yahweh again, the covenant-keeping God, the eternal God, the great I am, the only God. And what kind of God is he? He's a great God, a mighty God. The psalmist is going to immediately explain what that means. There in the second half of verse 3, we see that the Lord Yahweh is a great king above all gods. What does it mean to be king? Kingship implies authority and sovereignty. A king is all-powerful in his domain. A king decrees the law. A king is the ultimate judge of right and wrong in his kingdom. And where is God king? Well, we'll answer that question in a minute. Look at the second part of verse 3. The Lord is a great king above all other gods. Why does the psalmist say this? Does that mean there are other gods out there, but our God is just a little bit stronger? What does this mean? No, it doesn't mean other gods exist. There isn't a pantheon that just has our God at the top. Verse 3 means simply this. Israel was a nation surrounded by dozens of other nations that idolatrously worshipped many different things as gods. The psalmist is saying, anything you think to be a god, you're wrong. Our God is real. He's king over all your statues of stone and wood. And in case you're not clear on that point, let me tell you who our God is. He's the God who holds the depths of the earth in his hand. The peaks of the mountains are his. The sea is his. Why? Because he made it. Oh, and by the way, he made all the dry land too. Your mountain God, your God of the sea, yeah, those are fake. Our God made the mountains and the sea. That's who our God is. One thing to think about here, it's very easy for us to look at what the psalmist says and, and go, yeah, those silly Canaanites thinking that they're other gods. I would never do that. Well, maybe. But the psalmist is talking to God's people, people who, like us, 
know that there's only one true God. So why does the psalmist tell us this? Well, because the reality is we need to be reminded that anything we worship instead of God is just like one of these false gods. Like the people of Israel, we're surrounded by gods in our everyday life. What do you worship? What are you tempted to put in a higher place above God? Politics? Sports? Your image? Your work? Your own secret sins? The reality is that we are all idolatrous people at heart. Our sin nature seeks to supplant our right worship of God and to instead ascribe worth to false gods. That's why John ends his letter of 1 John with this call, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So let's not look past this reminder in Psalm 95. Let's, let us not worship other gods. See our great king's authority and sovereignty and ascribe him the worship he deserves. Let's brag on our great God. But these verses are not meant to just be a teaching about false gods. In verses 3 through 5, we see that God is a great king and that he's the maker of all creation. The sea is his because he made it. He made the dry land. He holds the depths of the earth in his hand, and he owns the very heights of the mountains. What does this all mean? It means that God has created everything. And the Psalms are full of descriptions of God's creating work. Psalm 8 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you would care for him? God is creator. He owns all that he's made. He rules it as king. Earlier, we had the question, where is our God king? Well, the answer is here. He made it in everywhere. He's king over all creation. He made it. He owns it. He rules it. He is entirely, supremely sovereign over all things. And if we know this about God, then this should affect the way we worship him. God's kingship over all things should fuel our worship. Do you clearly see God's might and rule? Does your life correspond to this truth? How easy it is for us to get lost in the hustle and bustle of life and forget we have a king who's over all things. He's entirely in control. If he holds the depths of the earth in his hands and with his fingers sets the stars in place, then surely you can trust him to be in control and be Lord of your life. Why would you doubt God's might and control? Sure, we live in a world full of sinful people and sinful practices. We're surrounded by people who seek to deny the king's true authority with every ounce of their being. But that should not be us. We should clearly see God's sovereign rule and respond in clear, joyful worship. Let us remind each other of this. As we call one another to worship our God, we should remind each other of how great our God is. He's over all false gods. He's the creator and ruler of the universe. And most, and most importantly, as his people, he is our God. There's another reason why our worship is to be joyful. It's because our God has a relationship with us. Psalm 8, which we just read, perfectly asked this question. 
When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? That brings us to our third directive this morning. Joyfully submit to the God who knows you. Joyfully and willingly submit to the God who knows you. Verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Seeing who God is, the extent of his sovereign might, the supreme control he has over the universe he created, seeing all of that calls for a response. And that's where the psalmist starts. Oh, come, let's respond to who God is. What we see in verses 6 and 7 is a call to worship and bow, a call to kneel, and a reason why we should do those things. And let's first look at the call to worship and bow. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. In many ways, worship is the same as bowing down. And in fact, the root word, the root of the word for worship in Hebrew means to prostrate oneself in reverence of whatever one is worshiping. This is worshiping and submitting to God. A true relationship with God is both worship and obedience. You can't just hype up the music and sing your heart out with any real meaningful obedience to God in the rest of your life. Worship is more than just emotion. Likewise, you can't just have obedience without worship. Without joyful worship, obedience misses the boat too. It's just rule following and checking off boxes. We see here that we're to be worshipful and obedient. Joyfully praise our God and obey him as your king. This is what a true relationship with God looks like. We're also called to kneel before the Lord our maker. What does all this bowing and kneeling actually mean? Well, to answer that question, let's look at who we're kneeling before. We're kneeling before the Lord our maker. And this all ties back into the previous point where we were called to clearly see God's sovereign rule. This is where the big picture cosmic scale comes right down to intersects on the personal level. Sure, you should submit to God solely on the basis that he's the divine creator and sustainer of the universe. That alone demands your knee. But this kneeling here is before the Lord, our maker. God demands your obedience because he made the universe, but he also demands your obedience because he made you. Have you thought about that before? He rules over you. He's sovereign over you. Whether you fully acknowledge that and see it, it does not change God's ultimate authority over you and your life. So what does kneeling mean? It means that you recognize God for who he is. He's your maker. He's the king. You're kneeling before the king. It means that you're seeking to obey him and his rule and no one else's. Another element of kneeling and bowing down is that it's done willingly. It's not done by accident. It's not grudging. It's done joyfully and willingly because of who God is. 
Those who don't bow before God now, who don't submit to his authority, who don't see him as king, they will be judged for, the, for their rejection of God. And on that day of judgment, every knee will be made to bow. But this psalm is getting at a joyful, willing obedience that's done out of worship for God, and it's done now. It's done because of who God is and what he's done for us. How do you kneel and obey our great king? Well, it starts in your heart. Do you love God more than your sin? That's what true obedience is. It's saying that I love God more than my sin. True submission and obedience starts in the heart. And our problem is that apart from God, our hearts are desperately wicked. They're full of sin. Where does sin come from? Not from the outside, but from the inside, from our very own hearts. And so to kneel and obey our great king, we need to pray. We need to ask God to give us the ability to kneel and fight sin. Someone has said that the only thing greater than your capacity to love sin is God's capacity to help you hate it. So pray. Ask for God's help. Ask for the Holy Spirit to help you love and obey God. Pray for joyful obedience. This is most wonderfully seen here at church. Notice the call in verse 6. Let us, all of us, this gathering of God's people, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. That's what happens in a true church. Together, we submit to God's word. Together, we obey God. An outsider should look at us and go, all of those people are clearly united and they're shared obedience to their God. It's the marker of God's people in the true church. Brothers and sisters, let us hold true to our confession. If we confess that Jesus, the rock of our salvation, is Lord of our lives, then exhort one another, encourage one another, seek out accountability, help each other so that we can all come forward and kneel before our King and Maker. The reason for our obedience and the reason why it's truly joyful becomes apparent in verse 7. For he is our God. Our maker is our God. This is utterly amazing. The creator of the universe, the God above everything, has chosen to have a relationship with us. We joyfully kneel because our God loves us. We are the people of his pasture. He cares for us. What can happen to the sheep who dwell in God's pasture? Who can harm us? No one. Our God loves us. God is our shepherd and we are the sheep of his hand. That means he feeds us. He cares for us. And the greatest way we see that is that he has saved us from our sins by sending Jesus, the great shepherd, to come and seek out the lost. To gather his sheep and to save us from our sins. He did this by taking the full punishment of sin upon himself on the cross. This personal, intimate relationship with God is what fuels our worship and drives our obedience. We have a real relationship with our God. The shepherd knows his sheep. We praise him because of who he is, a great God, king, creator, ruler of the universe, a king who has a personal, loving relationship with us. He is worthy of all praise. And we obey him because he's a mighty God. 
a king who is absolutely sovereign over all that he has made. His divine power demands our obedience. And his personal relationship with us is what makes that obedience joyful. Now, if we're following the direction of this psalm, we see a pattern. Let us come sing and worship. See how great our God is. See your relationship with God. See that you're the sheep of his pasture. And you think that the follow-up to seeing the amazing fact that we have a relationship with God would be another call to worship. That's what you would expect. But instead, this psalm goes in another direction. It's abrupt and sharp. It's like a bucket of cold water thrown right in your face. And this abruptness is purposeful. And it leads us to our final directive. Soberly examine your heart. Soberly examine your heart. Starting in the final line of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This psalm ends on a warning. This is intentionally jarring because the psalmist wants us to think about our hearts and our relationship to God. And so he sets up this contrast. Let's break down that final line in verse 7 because it's there we get so much information about why the psalmist goes in this direction. Today, if you hear his voice. Today. Why does he bring up today? Hebrews 3, where there's an extended exposition of this warning, helpfully identifies today this way in Hebrews 3.13. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today. The writer of Psalm 95 and of Hebrews are both making the same point. When is it a good time to do this evaluation? Today. When is it today? It's always today. Today, it's today. What does this mean? This means that this sober examination of your own heart is something that you should be doing constantly. And we'll get to more of that in a bit. Look again at the final line in verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, who's the you? This is important. He's talking to the sheep. He's talking to God's people. He's talking to all of us. So listen, brothers and sisters, this warning is for us. Let's move to the final part of verse 7. Today, right now, if you believer, if you hear his voice, when do you hear his voice? Well, you're hearing it right now in the words of Scripture. Scripture is God's voice. God's word is calling you to listen, to hear what he has to say, to hear the words of your king and your shepherd. The word of the Lord is the line in the sand, and here's the warning. Do not harden your hearts. This examination is today. Today is the day to evaluate your heart and see if you hear God's word. Do not harden your heart. 
What does that mean? What does it mean to harden your heart? Well, the psalmist knew that we would ask that question. And so he provided for us an example from Scripture. God himself speaks now in this psalm, and God provides an example of his people who hardened their heart to the point that they were no longer God's people. Look now at verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. The example of what a hardened heart looks like is found in the people who God brought out of Egypt in the Exodus. God rescued them from the harshness of the Egyptians. God worked through miraculous plagues of judgment and through making a way through the Red Sea and separating the waters. God very clearly and tangibly saved his people and provided for them. He fed them with manna. He gave them his law. His presence dwelt in their midst in the tabernacle. He worked mighty miracles that they could all see and witness. And the chief among them was the salvation that he worked in bringing them out of slavery. But what happened? They hardened their hearts against God. They forgot God's goodness to them. They became bitter. They looked at their situation and questioned God. The two instances mentioned in verse 8, Meribah and Massa, which both had something to do with testing, were two separate instances where Israel doubted their God. They were sour and skeptical towards God and his word, and they acted in unbelief. Though they had seen God's work, his miracles, his awesome power, his desire to have a relationship with his people, though they had seen all of that, they rejected God. They put God to the test. Exodus 17.7 summarizes their hearts like this. There the people said, is the Lord among us or not? Where is this God? Who is he? That's what a hardened heart does. It rejects God. A hardened heart is one of unrepentant sin and unbelief. It's forgetting God's goodness. It's being bitter towards God. It's judging God by the situations in your life and not by his character. And this warning goes out to all of us. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. There are three types of people in this room, and each one of you needs to hear this warning. First, believers, those washed by the blood of Christ, hear this warning Examine your heart for unrepentant sin and unbelief and purge it from you with the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't let sin dim your spiritual eyes so that you become blind to the dangers of unbelief and a hardened heart. Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This warning is very much for you. But there's another type of person who needs to hear this warning, and that's for the one who thinks they're fine. They worship God. They obey God. From the outside, everything seems fine and good. But on the inside, their heart is not fine. They are an unbeliever who thinks they're a believer. If that's you, this warning is also for you. Examine your heart. Examine your relationship with God. Is there unbelief in your heart? Is there unrepentant sin? Are you bitter towards God? Do you truly recognize God as the king of your life? Right now, you're sitting in the danger zone, and you may not even know it. 
The last category of person is the unbeliever who knows that they are not following God. Is this you? If this is you, you already have a hardened heart that rejects God. You are currently sitting under eternal condemnation for not rightfully seeing the true king. You are rejecting the rightful king. You are dead in your sin. And the consequences are enormous and eternal. Repent of your sin and place your faith in Christ alone for salvation. Look back at verse 10. God says, For 40 years I loathed that generation. Loathed. Hated. Disgusted is a good word choice here. God was disgusted by that generation and their hardened hearts that rejected him. God hates sin. God loathes rebellion. God is disgusted by those who go astray in their heart and reject God's wisdom and word. The eternal consequences for this unbelief and rejection are enormous. God swore in his wrath that that rebellious generation would not enter his rest. When God takes an oath, that's serious business right there. God's holy wrath is a fearsome thing to behold. God is perfectly just and righteous, and he will fully unveil his wrath on all ungodliness. And for those with hardened hearts, that means they will not enter his rest. They face an eternity of judgment and separation from God. What does it mean to enter God's rest? The author of Hebrews tells us it means to fully and entirely enter into rest with God. Heavenly rest, eternal rest. It's the joy and security found in dwelling in the direct presence of God for the rest of eternity. That's what it means to enter God's rest. Brothers and sisters, that's what lies before us. Let us pursue Christ who has made possible the saving relationship between God and man. Let us pursue Christ fully so that one day we will enter into God's rest for all eternity. Let us take care that there not be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Let us not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but instead let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. In closing this morning... You all should see the corporateness of this psalm. We, as God's people and the members of this gathering, are all called to joyfully praise God. Let us come and sing together. Let us enter his presence. Let us make a joyful noise. We, as God's people, are called to see his sovereign rule over all creation and over our very own hearts. We as God's people are called to kneel and worship our king and shepherd who has saved us so that we can have a relationship with God. Let us worship and bow and kneel before our maker. Lastly, we as God's people are called to soberly examine our hearts. Let us not harden our hearts towards God. Let us persevere until the end so that we will truly enter into God's rest. All of these directives and calls on the Christian's life take place on the individual heart level. But that's not the only place where we do those things. We're called to participate in them together as a church. So do that. Plug into one another's lives. Find ways to exhort each other to worship and pursue God. Encourage each other in ways that help us obey God's word. 
Find accountability to fight sin. Don't stay in the shadows. Don't stay on the fringes. Dive in. We are commanded to. Come, let us worship and obey our great king. Let's pray. God, you are our great king and our maker. Thank you for the truth here in your word. We praise you for your might. We thank you for the relationship that we have with you through your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to truly worship and obey you in our hearts. In your name, amen.